um, get a chance to talk to them. Uh, also, um, I think most of our elders are here. And if you have elder-related questions, uh, buttonhole me or one of the elders, and we'll be happy to talk to you about that as well. So, our purpose here this morning uh, is to come to the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and to worship him through the Son by the Spirit. And I hope that is the reason that you are here this morning. Uh, if not, it's not too late to make adjustments. Uh, the Lord accepts our prayers at whatever time we offer them. Uh, even as I'm speaking right now, uh, if you came uh, tired or wore out from the week or um, even just spiritually dry, uh, today is the day to worship the Lord and to exalt Christ and to be known by the Lord and to, if necessary, repent of sin and to therefore establish ourselves in the opportunity to really worship the Lord and come to him with thankfulness and to bring glory to his name. So uh, this morning what we're going to be doing is worshiping our way uh, as we do every week through the scriptures. And so uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to finish chapter 9 this week. Next week we'll pick up chapter 10. Sorry, buddy. You're not going to be here for that one. But, um, but in any case, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is continuing to deal with an issue that had come up in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was primarily Gentile. Uh, the majority of the people who were in it were people who had been saved out of a pagan idol-worshiping background. They still would have had many members of their families and their friends and their business associates who would have been idol-worshiping people. And in an idol-worshiping culture, uh, there were lots of opportunities for fellowship with idol-worshiping folks, and one of the primary venues for that was in these rooms that were attached to the temples. And so you'd go to the temple of Dionysus or the temple of Athena or the temple of, of Zeus or, or whoever and you could eat there and they would have parties there. They would have birthdays and anniversary celebrations and election victories or political rallies and this kind of thing in these spaces. And many times, as in our culture, they would eat. And the most readily available source of meat was the meat that was offered to the idol next door. And so the Corinthians have written, and by the way, to not participate in these things had not just a religious element, but it also had a social and a civic element to it too. And so to not do that was to mark yourself as an outcast in society and to set yourself apart from all of your friends and family and neighbors and business associates and political party members. And so it, was, it cost something to stay away from the temple. And in fact, they would also have these big celebrations every two years in association with an event called the Isthmian Games. Uh, Corinth is located on an isthmus between uh, between the uh, mainland Greece and the Peloponnese. And, and every two years they would have something like the Olympics and you would get a wreath there and, they, and there would be a lot of 
these celebrations that would go on at the pagan temples during the Isthmian Games. And this was a big deal. In fact, when in, in ancient Greece, prior to this time, if there was a war on, the war was canceled for the games. Well, well stop fighting, lay down your arms, time to go to watch the guys run. And then we'll pick up later. And they literally did that. So this is a big deal, these kinds of things going on. And this is a major cultural marker that if you're not participating in this, you are outside of society. And yet, at the same time, Paul has told them, stay away from there. Have no association with idolatry and idol temples. And you need to stay away from there for a number of reasons. And they have given him all kinds of justification in chapter 8. And he has shot all of that down and said, you know what? Love for your brothers and sisters would entail staying away from that, that they might clearly understand the distinction between following Christ and following one of these pagan gods and goddesses. That Jesus is not just another idol or another god to worship. That Jesus stands all other idols or gods off to the side and says, I am the only one that you may worship. But they're having trouble with that. And so Paul writes three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, to deal with this issue of why can't I go to the idol temple? And uh, if you've not been here for those, you need to uh, get online and listen because it'll catch you up on some good content. But here we're wrapping up chapter 9, and Paul is making a case. They've, they've basically been arguing, we need to blend in a little more, Paul. And Paul says, okay, well, let's talk about what it means to blend in and when you should and when you shouldn't and why. So if you got your Bible open, we're in uh, chapter 9, verse 19 to 23. This is what the Word of God says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Now, as you look at this section, you'll see that what you need to see is that verse 19, that I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. That's Paul's topic sentence for that section, that this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, that I'm not, a, I'm not a slave, no one is compelling me to do these things, but I have made myself voluntarily a servant to everybody else's needs for the sake of the gospel, that the gospel might go out. And uh, if you look at verse 20, you see Paul talking about how he... He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, that might confuse you, because if you know Paul's history, 
You know that he was born a Jew. He was raised a Jew. He uh, became a Pharisee, the, uh, the strictest sect of Judaism. Uh, he was a uh, God-fearing Jewish man, passionate for the holiness of God. So what's this business about as a Jew? Well, uh, in Paul's day, you, Jewishness, then as now, is not simply a religious identity. It's also an ethnicity. And there are things that go along with that. Customs and ceremonies and even physical things that happen to you as a man that you have to be part of in order to be regarded as part of the Jewish community. And Paul had a great passion to have his own people, the Jewish race, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he was unwilling to cut himself off from Judaism. He could have. He could have said, you know what? I know that the Messiah and the prophets and the scriptures and the patriarchs and all of that come through the Jews, but I am not going to be a Jew any longer because I don't want to be under the law. I don't want to have to Go through all of that business. I don't want to deal with all that. And besides, pork chops are tasty. And so I'm going to eat ribs and pork chops and live as a Gentile, though I am a Jew. But that's not what Paul did. Uh, in fact, what he did was he maintained his Jewish identity wherever he went. And if you read about his missionary journeys in Acts, the first place he went in every single city was the Jewish synagogue. And if you are going to speak at the synagogue, they don't just let any schmo off the street to go in there. You have to be a Jew. And if you're going to speak and to teach, you have to be recognized as someone with the right credentials. And so Paul maintains his credentials, but here's the flip side of that that's really challenging to be a member of the synagogue in good standing is to come under its restrictions and rules and requirements and also its authority within the roman empire the jews were given a great deal of self-rule and freedom within their communities and they could enforce their the mosaic law on anyone within that community except for the death penalty. They could not do that. But the Romans allowed them everything else. What that meant for Paul was this. You'll read this in 2 Corinthians 11 when we get to 2 Corinthians 11 later. But in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about all the hardships he's gone through. He says, five times I received the 39 lashes from the Jews. You know why? Because... The 39 lashes was the punishment allotted if you wanted to remain as part of the Jewish community, but you were judged guilty by the synagogue of blasphemy. And they regarded announcing Jesus Christ as God, which is what Paul did, as the Messiah who was predicted all through the Old Testament, and as God in the flesh, they said that's blasphemy. But in order to maintain his Jewish identity for the sake of the gospel, five different 
time, Paul let them take a whip to him. 39 lashes times 5. I'm not good at math, but that's more than one, and it hurts. Okay? I'm not, I'm not down for it necessarily on the first go. Never mind four more times. Paul was passionate and committed to the gospel. You know, when they talk about breakfast, you know, the chicken is interested the, if you have uh, ham and eggs, you know, the chicken is interested. The pig is committed, right? Paul was committed to the, to the spread of the gospel, even if it cost him his body, and it did. 39 lashes times 5. Uh, and as they would beat you at the synagogue, they would read... Curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's Deuteronomy 28 is all these curses for violating the law. And they would flog you and they would read that chapter about cursed will you be in the city and cursed will you be in the country because you have violated the law of God. And you're a violator. And so here Paul talks about being under the law. And being under the law is to be under the curse of the law. But Paul was willing to bear the curse for his own people that they might hear the gospel. And in this, he's very much like Jesus. Remember? He got flogged, got put to death, got hung on a tree. And the law says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he's bearing the curse for his people that they might be saved. Paul is doing the same thing. Saying, you want to blend in? Blend in with Jesus. And he says, I also have become like a Gentile. I'm willing to live as one without the law. I'm willing to sacrifice my own background and heritage. Paul is happy that he's a Jew, that he's proud that he's a descendant of Benjamin. And to him belong, as he says elsewhere in Scripture, the patriarchs, the Scriptures, the prophets, the human nature of Jesus. But I'm willing to lay all that aside... All the benefits and distinctiveness of, Jew, of Jewishness for the sake of the gospel. I'm not going to allow my Jewish heritage to interfere with my gospel preaching. So when he was with Jewish believers, uh, he tried to share the gospel with them and was willing to come under the authority of the synagogue even to physical punishment for the sake of that. But when he's with Gentiles, he eats what they eat. He ate with them which Jews did not do. He taught them. He met with them in their homes. He fellowshiped with them. He shared not only the gospel, but his own life, as he says elsewhere in Scripture. Why? Because the gospel is more important than the scruples that go along with being a Jew. And he's making it clear as he shares the gospel that you don't first have to become a Jew in order to be Christian. There's no longer a dietary code. There's no longer a need for sacrifices. Uh, and membership in the family of God is open to everybody equally. And Paul made it clear by the way he behaved that membership in the family of God is open to everybody. In fact, you'll read in, you can read in Galatians about how Paul actually climbed Peter's tree at one point over the fact that Peter 
got met up with some Jewish guys, and they're like, hey, uh, what's the deal, man? You're hanging out with those Gentiles. I mean, you know, I know they're Christians, but they're kind of second rate, don't you think? And Peter got swayed. And Paul came after him with a stick, essentially, and said, hey, you are undermining the gospel. And if the gospel is that everybody comes into the family of God on the same basis and that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that both Jews and Gentiles, that God has tore down the dividing wall between them and enabled everybody to come into the family of God, you had better not act as if there's the dividing wall remains. That's wrong. And Peter was humble enough to take the rebuke and change, as he should have. But Paul was passionate about the gospel. And he says, look here, we're not going to make a distinction. And here in, in uh, let's see here, look at it. Uh, verse 22, he says, he also talks about the weak. And I think he's talking there about both kinds of unbelievers, both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Paul regards them both as weak because they don't yet have the gospel. If you look at Romans chapter uh, 5, verse 6, Paul says this. He uses the same word, and he says, For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, in other words, while we were still under the domination of sin, while we were still subject to the penalty of death and hell, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's not saying, I became an ungodly person, I didn't become an unbeliever again, but he tried to live out the gospel with them. Because the gospel is the story of how God, who had all the power and authority and majesty and worship of angels, came, became a man, became weak, and took on a human nature that he might redeem the weak and the powerless. That as the scripture says, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Amen? But the idea is, is that Paul says, I'm going to do like Jesus did. And if I want to blend in with somebody, I'm going to blend in with Jesus. And I'm going to, I'm going to, Go out to unbelievers and I'm going to draw them in with the power of the gospel as it's lived in my life. That people can see what the gospel looks like as they look at me and hear it coming out of my mouth. That they might be saved. Jesus became a man, though he was God, he became a man that he might save people who could not save themselves. And this is a stark contrast to the Corinthians. The Corinthians want to come, they want to come and fit in and conform to the culture so that they themselves don't stick out too much. They want their rights, even if it stands in the way of other people coming to faith in Christ. And Paul says, no, you give up your rights. And if you want to conform, conform to Jesus. If you're a Jew, use that status to share with Jews, even if it means bearing the curse of the law in order to do so. And if you're uh, a Gentile, love people who, who are Gentiles, not trying to lay the law on people to whom it was not given, but telling them the gospel so that they can be adopted as God's sons and the true children of Abraham and gain a better method of obedience than trying to grit your teeth and obey the law. Because 
you know, as Christian believers, you know, the Jews had the land, they had the law, they had the covenant, they had the patriarchs, right? But guess what? We have a better father than Abraham. And we gain a better covenant than the one made with Moses. And we gain a better inheritance than the one that Joshua brought. And we serve a better leader than Moses. And we have a better system of obedience to God because we not only have the righteous requirements of the law written down, we have the Spirit of God who gave the requirements living inside that we might obey them. Now, that is an amazing thing. You know, we think, man, that would be super cool to be able to watch, watch the, the cloud in the daytime lift off from the tabernacle and we all pack our stuff up and move out following the cloud. And then the fire settles down at night and we patch, pitch our tents and we go, man, God is present among us. That would be cool. And then we could walk across the, the, the water and know that God was leading us because he's right there above the ark as we go around through the desert. That, that would be neat. We have better than that. We have the presence of the living God in our hearts, in each of us individually, and then as we gather together as a body. We don't have to, to see it out there. We have it in here. That's the gospel. that We have better than the people of Israel had. And we share the gospel with them as we share with everybody. People of every tribe and language are to stand around the throne worshiping the Savior and the King. And Paul says, look, be willing to conform to the needs of the people around you rather than try to conform to them. Shape your desire to conform to conform to Jesus that you might bring the gospel to them. Running short on time, but I'm going to preach anyway. All right, here we go. Uh, verse 24 to 27, look at this. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we have an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, this passage uses some athletic metaphors to make some very serious gospel-related points. Number one, the, pe the people of Corinth were people who were concerned about honor and prestige. So, Paul contrasts the quickly passing honors of the world with the eternal honors that come through faith in Christ. You know, every two years they, they, they had the Isthmian Games. Now, originally in Greek Corinth, they had a pine wreath. They would take little pine boughs and weave them together and make a little wreath, stick it on your head. By Paul's day, they took wilted celery and wove that in. That was the wreath. Now, how long does celery last? I mean, a week if you keep it in the fridge, right? How about if it's already gone bad? <laughs> it's passing away quickly. If you got it outside and it's already wilted, I can't imagine what that looks like, right? 
It does not take long. It passes quickly. And people would go into the Isthmian Games and they would register as an athlete and then you had to go move into a gymnasium and they would put you through absolute horrific stuff. You know, more push-ups until you puke and all this kind of thing, right? And they would do that to get a crown made of wilted celery. For a year, they would do that. Can you imagine doing that, right? I just finished here a few weeks ago the mini marathon in Indianapolis, 13.1 miles. I wanted to die. <laughs> about, nine, about nine miles in, I thought, Jesus, now would be a good time. Blow that horn, sucker. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Michael, tune it up, buddy. I'm ready to hear the trumpet of the archangel right now, okay? And you would go into training for a year to earn this crown because it was prestigious and you brought glory to your hometown and so forth, right? The glory of that is rapidly passing away. In fact, all of the glory of this world quickly passes. Quick, somebody shoot your hand up if you know who won the Academy Award for Best Actor two years ago. And this is the pinnacle. If you're an actor or an actress, I mean, you are like, I won an Oscar. Mm, yay me, right? Two years go by, nobody knows your name. Nobody. In fact, I'll bet 90% of us can't name who won this year. And that was just a couple of months ago. The glory of this world quickly passes, is Paul's point. But the glory we receive as a follower of Christ is eternal. It lasts. And so if you want glory and honor and prestige, run the Christian life in such a way as to win. He says, so look, I am living my life not like a guy who's just kind of out for a stroll somewhere. I'm running. I'm giving all my energy to the proclamation of the gospel. I'm shaping my entire life around that goal. And nothing's going to stand in my way. And I'm not going to box like a guy who's just, you know, standing there, you know, like some of us do. You know, I'm surely not the only guy who did that growing up, you know, standing in front of the mirror. Mm, yeah, I got three more chest hairs today, right? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm ratting myself out, I know. But, but you know, guys do that. Right? He says, I'm not boxing like a guy who's merely beating the air. He says, I am, putting, I am putting even my body in subjection to the gospel. And so if I, you know, at, at this time, steak is a big deal. You know, they're more concerned about steak at the idol temple than they are the people who are worshiping there. And he says, get it in the right perspective here. Because I don't want to be one of these people. Look at verse 27. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. His point is real simple. I don't want to live my life in such a way that it is not clear which side I am on. Because Jesus said this, remember? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name 
and they come out with all their long list of spiritual stuff. And Jesus says, and then I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of wickedness. I never knew. That's what he means by being disqualified. That, some, that it was not clear which side they were on. Whether they, you know, kind of were interested in Jesus, but never truly came to faith in him in a way that changed anything about their life. Because if there has been no change in your life after you came to Jesus, it's because there has been no change. You did not really come to Jesus. And so Paul is concerned about them, and we'll see his concern more next week in chapter 10, that they really, truly, authentically have come to faith in Christ that is real, because if the Holy Spirit of God is within you, there has got to be, there can't help but be change that results. And if there hasn't been, Paul says, you might get disqualified from the race and not receive a reward. It is not that our salvation is my works, far from it. It is that our salvation is proven real by the life that we have. So, two questions as we wrap up. Number one, will you sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? Will you sacrifice? sake the gospel will you endure hardship are you willing to suffer are you willing to give up your rights and privileges if it means that other people might come to faith in Jesus are you going to abandon pet sins and social conformity and respectability so that other people might see the redemptive power of the spirit of a life that is devoted to Christ? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? That day may come sooner than you think. That day may come at your job this week if you decide I'm willing to pay a price if it means that other people might come to faith in Christ. Because, see, the thing is, we don't just live our life for ourselves. The point of the Christian life is not simply that I would have a relationship with Jesus and, you know, go to church with some other people who have a relationship with Jesus and we would all kind of, you know, have a life that, that you know, looks like Jesus, you know, but individual and separate from anybody else. The idea is, is that our lives would be transformed that they might be a testimony to other people. That we then might open our mouth and share the gospel with them. We have this wall over here full of people connected to our church who don't know Jesus. Most of them. Except for those ones that have got the gold crosses next to their name. They know Jesus now because of people in this church. Are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Because that's one of the things God calls us to. Paul tells Timothy, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ will suffer. 
question is, why? You're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Last question. How are you running and fighting? How are you running? Are you running your life in such a way that you might win? Because that's the objective. You know, it doesn't do any good to, you know, go to the gym and watch your diet and, and you know, go through all of that agony. And it's agony. It is. Right? It is. It's hard. It's far harder at 40 than it is at 20. Okay? And I imagine at 60 it's worse. But in any case, it's hard. Right? If you want to make changes in how your body is, it's hard work. It's effort. It's suffering. It's take me Jesus, take me now. <laughs> okay? Um but you do that in order to have a reward, right? But guess what? All of the running that I have done, it's improved my health. It's good, right? It's a good thing. My blood pressure's come down. My heart rate's down in the 50s. You know, I'm doing good as far as my health goes. But you know what? Exercise, eat right, and die anyway, Okay? Because nobody gets out of here alive. And the issue is, one day you stand before the Lord. And I want to hear. And I want every one of you to hear. Because if not, I, my life has not been successful. I did not move here. So that everybody that I pastored and shepherded and taught the Word of God... Could get to get to heaven and hear, well, you made it. Okay? I am hoping and praying and teaching and preaching and exhorting and discipling and encouraging and, if necessary, booting uh, sometimes people to change and to pursue Christ, not so that I can have great glory, but so that you can. So that you can stand before the Lord, as I hope to, and have him say, well done. Two most important words to me in all of life are those. That out of my master's mouth would come, well done, good and faithful servant. Come enjoy your master's happiness. And more than anything else, my life is devoted to that task of ensuring that not only that I would see that, but that you would. So how are you running? How are you fighting? Are you disciplining yourself? Not for short-term gain. Although, you know, physical exercise is of some value. Eating right will make you feel better. But godliness is of value for eternity. Amen? Let's not get it confused. Godliness with contentment, Paul tells Timothy, is of great gain. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be willing to do whatever is necessary, that the gospel would go forth boldly and the kingdom of God would expand.
because, Father, we know that you are glorified as your kingdom grows, as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only God that is worth worshiping, the only one worthy of the name, in fact, is you, Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, Father, we, we pray for our, our people here. I pray for me. I pray for these. They are your sheep. They are your people. And, Father, I am merely the shepherd you have called to proclaim your words to them. Father, I pray that by your grace, that you would be the purity that we seek, that you would grant it to us uh, through the Son on 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 our behalf that we might walk in holiness before you that we might live before our neighbors in such a way that they say truly that is what a follower of Jesus is and I am not one yet but if I ever become one I want to be the one like that person or this one who truly knows the Lord and who walks faithfully with him And Father, I pray that you would empower these things by your Holy Spirit, that we would not run aimlessly or box like somebody shadow boxing, but that we would run in such a way that we might win and hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come enjoy your master's happiness. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.